0: Father, we thank you for this uh, beautiful day. I pray that you would help us at this for, uh, very point in time to be focused on your words and what we're going to be learning from the book of Luke, uh, to continuing on with the prodigal son. I pray that you would give us wisdom uh, and knowledge we need to understand this text, to understand the actions of the Father. Uh, I pray that you would give us wisdom in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned in the prayer, we're going to be back at um, the prodigal son looking at that text. And we're going to be looking at the father today. Our main verses are going to be in chapter 15, verses 20 through 24. Uh, But before that, a quick review. Again, he has a series of parables that lead up to the parable of the prodigal son. You have the sheep, which we discussed And how the shepherd seeks out the lost sheep and he brings it back. And then you have the lost coin with the woman, which is illustrating that same concept. uh, That idea of something being lost and someone going to find it. That is us being lost in our sin. And Christ came. God comes and he seeks us out. Which leads to the parable of the prodigal son. Which has the same meaning, except for from beforehand, we saw it from the perspective of the shepherd and the woman. Uh, now we, in some sense, get to see it from the perspective of the lost son, from the person seeking, that is the father. And then there's one other character, which is the older son. We've already discussed previously the lost son and how he had to get to his lowest of lows, really, uh, if you remember, as reckless to the point of redemption. And so he got to his low, low, even with the pigs, which would be abominable to the Jews. Uh, and in that state, he finally recollects his father and says, how many of my father's servants have more than enough? And he goes to seek his father. And that is where we are at today. Um But before we get to our actual text, let's just read our text today. I'm going to start at verse 11 just for the recap. And he said, again, continuing the thought of the previous parables, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to uh, his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, this is where our text is going to pick up today. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put on a, And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and it was alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Again, this is a very popular parable at some point in time. You've probably heard it. And when you're understanding this parable, the biggest thing we need to understand is context and the history of the times. And so we'll be looking a lot in that today. I have three points I'm going to mention. And the first one is a gracious reunion. And that is because grace is searching. Again, the lost son, or the younger son here, is the lost one who represents us, and the father represents God, seeking. And I like what it says in verse 20. It says, And he rose and he He came to his father, but while he was still a long way off. See, we need to realize that God is searching for us, much like the Father is. I want to take you to, real quickly, John. John chapter 4, verse 23. Because when people look at this parable, one of the things they say is, well, this parable clearly are, shows that God doesn't have a part in salvation, that salvation is dependent on the one who was lost. Because in this parable, it makes it seem like that, right? The son, up until this point, has been the main focus, that fact that he was lost, he was at as low as the lows, and then the son realizes that, hey, I need to go to my father, But when you're looking at this, that's why we need to have all three parables in mind. There was just two previous parables that explained very well that it is the shepherd who seeks the lost sheep, and it is the woman who looks for the lost coin. And even now, it is the father who is still longing to have his son return and is looking and waiting, and when he sees him a long way off, then he runs and searches for us, much like... God is seeking us. So John chapter 4 verse uh, 23. It says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. Again, that idea of God seeking him. Turn over to chapter 6 Verse 44. Chapter 6, verse 44, and we'll see a similar thing. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, it is God who draws us near. It is God who is seeking us. And one more thing, I want to turn to you real quick, all the way to the beginning of your Bibles, to Genesis 3, verse 8. Okay. This is important for us to understand. Genesis 3, verse 8. It says, And they heard a sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, when I was thinking about this in light of the parable, and in light of God searching for us, we need to think about one thing. Why does God call out, where are you? I mean, God is obviously omnipresent and omniscient. He obviously knows where Adam and Eve is. Uh, but God here, because of man and his sin, right, they hid themselves, in his sense, from God. And God here in the Garden of Eve is doing what? He's searching for them. Where are you? All the way back from the beginning, since the moment that we decided to go our own way, God started searching for us. And so when you're looking at this parable, it's important not to see it in the light of not to see it as man is the one who does all the work in salvation. It's actually important to see it as God is the one doing the work in our lives to save us. It is God working through man. And so back in our text in Luke, it's interesting because the Pharisees and scribes would have never expected this to play out the way it did. When you're looking at this, they would probably imagine they'd see him a long way off and he would expect the father to go up to him and cast him out of the family and say, you're not welcome here or you must uh, stay outside the gate of the home uh, for days in shame because of what you have done. And he probably, they would have expected the father to tell the son that you need to work your way back into the family, that you need to work your way, uh, work for reconciliation. Um, Because to the Pharisees and the scribes at the time, again, it was a work-based thing. They would have expected him, To work his way back into the family. And so it would have been great surprise. That the father sees him a long ways off. And he goes and he runs to him. And he embraces him. See from a long way off the father sets his love on the son. And from a long way off God sets his love on us as well. So grace is searching for us. But grace is also active. And I love what it says here. It says, and his father saw him and felt compassion. This word compassion is blanka. Uh, It is to have pity, uh, to point to the inward parts of man. It's kind of an interesting word because... Jews esteemed the bowels of man to be the uh, part of sympathy and tenderness towards people. It seems kind of strange to us, but it's not that strange when you think about our heart, right? We use our heart as a symbol for loving people, and it's the same way for them. They thought of the bowels, the heart, as the sense of tenderness and sympathy towards people. The noun is used in 2 Corinthians 6, 11, and through 12 as heart, cardia, and so it has that connotation he felt compassion inside of his bowels or his heart. And I was thinking about this, that he felt compassion. And I was thinking about mainly because we did the study on the attributes of God. And for one moment in time, I was like, did I ever talk about God's compassion? Or did I completely miss that attribute altogether? And in some ways, I did. And in some ways, I didn't. When you're thinking about this compassion, uh, it is the uh, verb or the noun of Mercy, or mercy is the verb form of compassion. And so when you're thinking about compassion, I like what Tozer says. It says, God compassionates man. That is, God has mercy on man. And so, as we're thinking about this, God, or the Father, sees him from a long way off, and he has compassion, and he wants to show mercy On his son. And it made me think that from the compassion of God flows mercy and grace. It's that he saw his son and he felt that compassion for him. And it's interesting because Jesus many times has compassion for people. And, well, let's just turn to a passage. Let's go to Luke 7. We'll stick in Luke. Luke 7:13 Luke 7:13 says, "And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion and said to her, Do not weep." Uh, then he came and touched the briar, the bearer, and he stood, and he said, "Young man, I say to you, arise. this is when um, Jesus raises the widow's son back to life. But that idea, right? He saw her and he had compassion. Uh, Another place we could go to, which that was on an individual basis, but in Matthew, you don't have to turn there, I'll turn there. It says Matthew 14, 14 says this. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, a lot of people, and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And so as you're going, you're thinking of this father who sees his son a long way off and he has compassion. And then you think of Jesus who saw these people in need who had problems and he had compassion on them. And their greatest problem of all is the fact that they had sin in their life. And so much like Jesus had compassion for them, God sees us a long way off and he feels compassion Because we are that lost sheep. We are that lost coin. We are that lost son. Or hopefully were that lost son. And so he has compassion or mercy on us. And so because of this compassion, he runs to his son. Again, in Luke 15, he ran. To him, And this running is very interesting because it's the same use in 1 Corinthians 9 when Paul is talking about running the race. And it's that same word. It has this idea of sprinting, giving it your all. You're running the race. You're doing the best you can. He is running to his son. He cannot wait until he gets to his son. He's literally sprinting to him. And this is very intriguing because Middle Eastern men or noblemen during that time period don't run. This is not something you would ever see them doing. And that's because to see them to run, remember you have robes, you don't have pants like us. And so you would have to pick up your robe so you don't trip over it. And then you would have to run. But the problem is when you do that, then your legs are going to be showing. And they never had their legs showing. This would have been a shameful thing to do. You don't have your legs showing. You don't run like that. Which makes the parable all the more interesting. Uh, In doing this, the father is becoming an object of shame to get to his son. And you might be thinking of a particular verse that I'm sorry I have you turned to a lot of places, but it's exciting. Philippians. When you're thinking about this idea of him becoming shame or being shamed, right? The Pharisees and scribes would hear this and say, Why is that guy running towards a son who is a sinner? What is he about to do? Philippians two, verse five Says, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality to, with God to be a thing to, uh, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and, uh, himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A very popular verse, but it has that idea. Uh, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself... In the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Uh, Much like the father is picking up his robe and running to the father, becoming shamed, Christ also humbled himself, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. I always think we kind of always glance over the fact that Jesus became a man, uh, like he was born a virgin. Uh, And I think it's because sometimes we have a high view of man. But when you are the omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, loving, all-knowing God, to become man and die on the cross for that lost sinner, that is a serious humbling of oneself. So he humbled himself, much like the father uh, humbled himself or shamed even himself to get to his son. And when the father gets there, again, he embraces his son. It is literally to fall onto. To throw oneself upon. That is what he's doing. So he's sprinting to his son. He almost, I kind of picture him just almost tackling his son. It's just he falls on him. It's kind of the same idea as in, is in Genesis 3, 33, verse 4, where Esau and Jacob finally get together and they throw themselves together and they weep on each other. They lovingly embrace one another. And this is just a sign to the son of um, acceptance and love. Uh, that the son at this point in time doesn't have to fear any serious repercussions. And that he realizes he's home, he's back with his gracious and loving father. And that's only all the more uh, seen as he is kissing him. Again, it says he had compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Uh, some commentators say that it's this idea of continually he is kissing him. This father is so excited that his son has finally returned. And the kiss is a sign of reconciliation and peace um, that this What the son did is forgiven. And so we see this grace is searching, grace is active, and the last thing is grace is given. At this point in time, if you didn't have any context, you might actually be like the Pharisees and say, well, the son didn't really deserve this treatment. He really didn't. Like the son literally does nothing to deserve this. The only thing he does is come back to the father with all of his problems. And that is exactly what the Pharisees and scribes would be saying. What is he doing? Why is the father treating him like this? He shouldn't be treating his son like this. His son needs to work his way back into the family. That's what his son deserves to have happen to him. I like MacArthur had a really quick quote it says legalism hates grace and I thought that was quick but profound uh, this idea that if you are a legalist like the Pharisees and scribes you're not going to like grace because grace is pretty much the opposite of that grace is not getting what you deserve and they're saying no he deserves to have punishment he needs to earn his way back And so grace is given. And it's funny because all the way again from the beginning in Genesis 3, nine, because I was thinking about that, how the, or God calls out, where are you after they've sinned? And he told them, look, if you eat of the tree, you're going to die. And I was thinking how interesting it is how he gave grace to them at that point in time. I mean when they ate of the tree they could have just died like that and God instead graciously calls out to them where are you he sees that they're sin and he casts them out of the tree but then he also provides for them there by killing the animal and covering them and so all the way again from the beginning we see this idea of grace being given And ultimately the sacrifice of Christ. So we see a gracious reunion. That is the grace searching. It's active. And it is given. But now we move on to a guaranteed reconciliation. And we'll see why. But first of all we need to see that man acknowledges his sin. Again, in verse 21, he's repeating. Remember, he had rehearsed what he was going to say to his father when he was still uh, in the far country. And now he gets to say, and the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. We looked at that statement and we realized that that was a true confession because he realizes where his chief sin is against. Right. My sin is against heaven. Uh, I have sinned against God. And we looked at King David and how all the things he did. And he ultimately says, I've sinned against you, Lord. And so this is a true confession, but note that he doesn't actually say everything that he rehearsed. And when he rehearsed, he says, I've sinned against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And now that part, to treat me as one of your hired servants, is left out. People had a lot of different thoughts on why he left that portion out. I think it is because he realized that he is already, he's seen the grace of his father, and he realized that statement isn't any, is no longer needed. He has already been embraced and kissed, and his father's already ran to him and expressed his love and acceptance for the son. And so he no longer needs them. And we have to note that he does say this after all those things take place. The running, the embracing, and the kiss. And that is because often the more and more we see the love of God, the more and more we mourn for our own sin. And so he's more and more realizing his errors. I like what Trent wrote about this. He makes it a lot more clear, R.C. Trent. It says, the more the sinner knows and tastes God's love, the more grievous his sin becomes. And thus will repentance be a lifelong thing. For every new insight into that forgiving love is a new reason for mourning. And so it has this idea is that the more we know God the more we know about his love the more we know about his love on us the more we mourn for our sin and the more we express our love for him See the son already knew that his father was gracious he mentions that with my servant his servants have more than enough uh, that he feeds them well and now he's seeing that placed on himself. And he still admits his sin, he still admits his mistake, but he realizes that his father has already put him in a position back into the family. And now he's seeing his father in a whole new light. As we do when we are forgiven. And as we go through this life and we make mistakes and we learn more about the love of God, the deeper our appreciation and love for God becomes. So, again, he leaves out the treat me as one of your hired servants. So the man is acknowledging his sin But the man is also being reconciled. In verse 21, we see that. And so we see, let's just read it real quick. And the son said, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Actually, in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the breast robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So he tells them, bring the best robe. And then just for a note, he says, quickly, bring it quickly. I want this done now. My son is returned. You can just, throughout this whole parable, or this, these verses, you just see the excitement of the father. He's running to him. He's embracing him. He's quicking it, uh, kissing him. He's thinking about, what do I need to do now? Bring the fatty cap, Do it quickly. Kill it. We need to celebrate right now. So he's saying, bring the best robe. And the robe belonged to the patriarch of the family. And this was worn only on special occasions, uh, the most special occasions, something like a wedding or something like that. So he's, bring the best robe that I have. He's placing him in a place of honor. And so the son automatically goes from this place of being with the pigs to returning to the father to being in a place of honor, a place in that family he had never probably been at at that point in time. So he goes from his lowest of lows to his highest of highs, but it only goes higher. He says, bring the ring. And this is his signet ring. This is very important to the family. It would have the family crest, and this was used to sign and seal documents. And so he is bestowing on him privileges and rights and the authority of himself to the son. Look, give him my ring. I want him to know how important he is. He is back in the family. And he says, bring him shoes, which sounds a little interesting to us because when do we ever not have shoes? Uh, but shoes, if they were not worn by people, it probably meant that they were slaves. And so he's look, My son's not a slave. Give him shoes to wear. He is restoring him back as his son. And he's making it perfectly clear to everyone and the son himself. You are back. You have my authority and power. And so man is being reconciled. And that is because God reconciles us. Now reconcile is a big word. Uh, reconciliation denotes this idea of change in a relationship, as going from enmity to friendship. And I want to be clear on this. So let's turn to Second Corinthians. All right, sorry, Second Corinthians five. Verse 18. And it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, excuse me, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There's a lot of reconciliation. We'll actually just continue. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might so that in him we might become the righteousness of God now there's a lot of reconciliation taking place in this passage but i want to note just a few things verse 18 all of this is from god right so it's from god who through christ so it's from god through christ who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So reconciliation comes from God through Christ. And again, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, and that is not counting their trespasses against them. So he's taking us from a place of, Being an enemy to a place of friendship with God through Christ. Now, when you're thinking about Christ's death and sacrifice, it's that Christ paid the atonement for our sin. That is, he paid the price for our sin. Uh, Which is not the same as being reconciled. Uh, Reconciled is the result of that atonement. Uh, It is... Because of Christ's death and because of his sacrifice, because he atoned for our sin, that we are now reconciled to God. We are at a place where we were enemies of God to where we are now at friendship with him. We are that lost son to being that found son. Let's go to, again, another passage that will help us clarify this a little more. Romans 5. Verse ten Romans five verse ten says for if <clears throat> while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? <clears throat> more than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom We have now received reconciliation. Again, I love this verse because it really clearly articulates it. For if we were enemies, and it has that going against God, going our own way, just like the lost son, going to the far off country. We were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Much more, now that we are reconciled, um, shall we be saved by his life. We go to a point of being enemies, to a point where we are saved through Christ. And so the work, again, I'm highlighting is the fact that it is Christ who does that through the death of his cross, through the death of the cross, death on the cross. (laughs) So we are reconciled through the power of God in Christ. And that's why I said it is a guaranteed reconciliation. Because it is God who is doing the work through Christ on the cross. And Christ on the cross said it is finished. And so we have that. A gracious reunion. A guaranteed reconciliation. And a grand rejoicing. And this is much like the previous parables where there is rejoicing in what was found, except for this father takes this to a whole new level. And again, he says, kill the fattened calf. And again, this was only done, this thing was (laughs) made only for specific occasions, uh, something like a wedding. And... The father, in seeing his son, seeing him return, replacing him and restoring him back in the family, he's looking at and saying, what better time to kill the fattened calf than right now? And what ta- better time to celebrate than right now? So they're rejoicing to the fullest. Now this celebration is ten times bigger than the one for the, uh, the sheep and the widow. Uh, this calf, uh, could feed up to 200 people. And so you can imagine he's just saying, no, just invite the whole town. We're going to celebrate this. I want everyone to know that my son was lost, but he is now found. And so the rejoicing to the fullest and they're rejoicing in the new. I want to notice, take a moment to notice this stark contrast. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again, he was lost, and he is found. The the contrast couldn't be any more clear. He's using exact opposites to illustrate this. He is dead, or he is lost. That is, he is inanimate, uh, not able to move, limp, lifeless, dark, uh, all these different things. He is not even there. And he takes us from that point of being dead, lifeless, to a point of being alive and found, living, active, light, whatever you want to say. He brings us from one spectrum uh, to the other. The clearest place we can see this as well is in Colossians 2.13, and I'll just read it for you. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I don't think I have. That's That actually kind of, that was the wrong verse. That was chapter 1, verse 13. But kind of the same idea, right? Domain of darkness and trans us to the kingdom of light. <laughs> Let's do uh, chapter 2, verse 13. And it says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And so a clear example of you were dead in your trespasses. And again, it's so important that we understand the fact that you were dead. And I know we say it all the time, but you won't. It's not that you were low. You were the lowest of lows of lows. You were that son in the pigs saying, I can't get any lower. You're dead, inanimate. I'm not able to do anything. And he takes you from that place to being alive. And not only alive, but you're alive together with him. You go from a place of being dead to being alive with the spirit within you. And having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands as he made atonement for us. And because of that, we have reconciliation. We need to continually realize the extent of what Christ has done and is doing for us today. And so we have a gracious reunion, a guaranteed reconciliation, and a grand rejoicing. We need to not let the party stop, so to speak. We need to always be rejoicing in what God has done in our lives in the past and what he is continuing to do in our lives today and constantly praising him for those things which he is doing in our lives. And with that, let's praise him as we stand and close in our last song. Uh, But before we do that, I'll just pray real quick. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to come together to look at this parable of the prodigal son. uh, To take a deeper look at the father uh, and how he graciously sought us and he is seeking us and reconciled us. uh, And then also rejoices with us and i pray that we would always see you for who you are that we would always be looking deeper into your attributes and who you are and what you're doing in this world and that we would always appreciate you more and more and show our love for you i pray that we would always be worshiping you and day and night and meditating on your word and we just thank you and praise you for this text and that we are able to learn it, and that we Mm -hmm. hopefully apply it to our lives. And just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.